You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. So last week we started Job, and we just looked at the first six verses. So if you weren't here, Warren, you didn't miss a whole lot. You can go back and you can catch those notes. But we only got through the first six verses, and, and we were looking at one main question, and that was, who is Job? Right, and specifically, we, last week we looked at three key facets of Job's life just in review. We looked at the integrity of Job, right? the fact that he was a real man who believed in Israel's God, and the fact that he was recognized by both God and his peers as upright and blameless. And we also looked at the purpose of Job, and that was Job's life as an innocent sufferer. He was the, he was the perfect picture of the innocent sufferer. Right, So that kind of sets the stage for the fact that if Job can suffer, then any one of us can suffer, right? Because he was completely innocent. And then lastly, we looked at the godliness of Job and just the fact that he was a righteous man who interceded on behalf of his family. He was concerned about his children. He offered regular sacrifices. And all of these qualities of Job, they set the stage for the conflict that we're going to encounter here in the book. But before we can get to that conflict, we've got to finish setting the stage because you know as well as I do that Job's not the only character that's in this conflict, right? It's not just the book only about Job. And so another character that we must gain a better understanding of is Satan. And we see Satan in the first couple of chapters. He's an interesting character, uh, but he's often mischaracterized, right? Because many people don't understand his place, his lie, and what his purpose is. So those are three things we're going to look at tonight, is Satan's place, his lie, and what his purpose is. Those are the questions that we're going to try to answer today. And in doing that, we're going to be better equipped to deal with Satan ourselves, and to understand the conflict that we see in this book. So tonight we're going to spend most of our time on the next six verses, uh, verses 6 through 12. I'm going to read those. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So we've got a picture here of, of a heavenly court. Satan's on the scene. And, and Satan is, uh, makes some pretty bold statements against God and ultimately is given permission to test Job. But we need to dive into that a little bit, bit further. And So the setting, what's going on, where are we? It appears to be some type of a courtroom, presumably in heaven. There's some scholars that think, well, this could have been on top of Mount Sinai where where Moses intervened with God as well. But we assume that it's a courtroom in heaven, and we're told that on this day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So the first question that we have to ask when we read that is, who are the sons of God? And we're going to dive into some controversy already, but... I really want to encourage you, you have notes in front of you, you, have, you own a Bible, I really want to encourage you to wrestle with this on your own. Uh, 
I've done a fair share of wrestling personally, and uh, I, th- I think this is something that you need to test yourself. You need to study the Word on your own. Um, but if we allow the book of Job to interpret itself, and we're trying to answer the question, well, who are the sons of God? Then once we get further into the book, specifically you'll see Job 38, 7, that verse appears to tell us that the sons of God that we just referenced in chapter 1, that those are angels. It says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when you look at that single verse, and then you go and you, and you back out, and you look at the context of where that verse is placed, God's talking about creation. And this is, this is about where that section of, of Job where God asked Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth, right? I'm the one that created the world. And when I did, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So he creates and the angels shout for joy. It's almost like last Sunday was the Super Bowl, right? And it's almost like your team scores a touchdown and everybody cheers. So when God creates the world, the angels are cheering. So we've got this gathering of angels. If it's, if it's the sons of God or angels, then we have this gathering of angels in the presence of God. And, and that we can confirm that in Scripture too, that angels have the ability to stand before God. In Luke 1.19, we see that Gabriel stood before God, and that's just one example. You can see all throughout Scripture that angels can stand before God. But it's interesting that in this passage, it tells us, and Satan also came among them. That's a qualifying statement. And if you were in English class, you would underline that because there's something going on there. It's a qualifying statement. Something is different about Satan. Because if he's your standard angel, why mention him? Right? It says the sons of God are there and Satan also came with him. So there's something different about Satan. He stands out in the crowd. He's not like the other angels that are present. So we have to ask the question, well, if that's the case, if there's something different about him, then who is he? This is where it gets a little interesting, and I want you to study on your own. And I don't want to uh, put too much on you here, but if you study the Hebrew language there, what you see, and I'm gonna, this is going to be a sim- very simplified English version, but what you see is this right here. All right? Now, in your English translation, it's very interesting. You could do a... You probably could do a complete dissertation on this and what's going on here. Because in your English, it's interesting, and I try to do some research. You would be amazed at the number of people I talk to. Have you ever heard this? No, I've never heard that. Why would you think that? But it's, it's interesting. How did we get the English translation that we got? Because it clearly says, and Satan also came among them. That's what it says. And what's, what's interesting about the word Satan in your English Bible. What's the first letter? S, and it's capitalized, which makes you believe what? That it's a personal name, right? It's a proper noun. But when you go to the Hebrew, this, this grammatical structure tells me this is not a proper name. Satan is not a proper name because this, this ha right here is the definite article, okay? And I don't want anybody to have panic attacks with English class because I hated English class. But the definite article is just the, okay? And so you know in the English language, you would never say the Satan. 
if this is a proper name. Right? So Dave is preaching tonight. You wouldn't say, the Dave is giving the sermon tonight. That's, that's not what you would say. The Donald. Well, maybe I'm wrong then. But <laughs> that's not proper English. Right? And Hebrew, Hebrew structure, grammatical structure, it works the same way. So you can't, this, the definite article can't come before a proper name. Okay? So that tells us that this is not, in this instance, this is not a proper name. Okay? So it's not Satan, as in the name Satan, that we all know. Now, I've done a lot of digging here. And this is why I encourage you to do a lot of digging. Because I wrestled with the, that, that right there for about a week. Because I had an outline all put together, and then me and Dale started talking about this, and I was like, blow that up. But I'll, I'll, maybe this will be comforting to you. From my perspective, I think that we're still talking about Satan. I just don't think that this is a proper name. And so if we go back to Genesis, right, in Genesis 3.1, it speaks of a crafty serpent. Now, if I asked you who was present in the garden and who tempted Eve in Genesis, what are you going to tell me? You're going to tell me Satan. Maybe you'd say Lucifer, but you're going to say Satan. You're not going to say the serpent, right? If you did say the serpent, I would say, well, who is the serpent? You would say Satan, right? So there's no proper name in Genesis. It doesn't call Satan by name there. So, again, you have to ask the question, well, are we dealing with the same person? Is this, is this Satan and Job the same Satan in Genesis? And, again, why do I come to the conclusion that I've come to? We've got to let the Bible interpret itself. Revelation 12, 7, and 9 appears to affirm that we're talking about the same Satan. So I'm going to flip over there and read that. It says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So we get a connection there of the proper name Satan linked to the serpent in Genesis, right? Who is also recognized as the adversary, which is if you wanted to get technical about what is this right here, it's just the adversary. So instead of a proper name, it's, more, it's not an adjective because it's still a noun, but it's an adversary. It's the adversary. It's a descriptor of Satan. Okay, does that make sense? I don't want to trip anybody up because I tripped myself up when I was studying this. But we're still talking about Satan, it's just not a proper name. Just something interesting to throw out there that's going on. It's hard to see just looking at your English translation. So I think we're talking about the same Satan of Genesis, the same Satan of Revelation. He's the adversary and the opposer of the one true God. That's who we're talking about. Okay? Revelation tells us that Satan was banished from heaven with other fallen angels. So naturally, you've got to ask the question, well, was Satan an angel as well? And if we look in Ezekiel 28:14, it tells us that he was an anointed cherub. So yeah, he was an angel. And in fact, he was, he was the highest of all the angel hierarchy is what, we're, it's what it's trying to tell us there. I don't know if he was at the tippy top of the list, but he was up there, right? And so it's important that we understand who Satan is and who he is, right? He's the adversary. He's the opposer of the one true God. Yes, he was an angel, and he was a fallen angel because he rebelled. But first and foremost, we've got to understand because we, what we do is if we don't have an understanding of who Satan is, we give him too much credit. And we give him too much power and authority that he doesn't have. He's a created being. You've got to remember that. He's a created being. He was created by the one true God. He's not eternal like God. He hasn't always existed. 
right? And he's not all-powerful like God. He's very limited. We're going to see that in the story of, jo- of Job. He was created as an anointed cherub. He, was, he wasn't created as an adversary, but he chose his path, right? He chose to be the enemy of God. So we're, all, we're full of questions tonight, and the next question would be, well, if, if that's true, if he's the adversary, if he's the opposer of the one true God, then why was he allowed in the presence of God? We see this courtroom scene. Why is he there? I mean, how many of you openly welcome your adversary to have a conversation? Like, I don't want to be around the guy. He's my enemy. Why don't I want to be around him if I don't have to be? So why is he there? I don't think we get a, tr- a true answer to that question, but we do get some insight into what's going on. We got a picture of this heavenly courtroom with a meeting of angels. Satan's clearly identified as different, right? He's, he's the adversary, so why does God allow him in the room? Initially, that picture doesn't seem to make sense to us. Well, again, why would I let my enemy in the room? But there's a few lessons in this scene that should provide us with some comfort and give us some insight into, at least on some level, why was he there, right? And in Job 1.7, that verse tells us, that God's the one that's initiated this meeting. It's very important to remember. Satan didn't just show up when he wanted to. God initiated the meeting. God called Satan to himself. Satan didn't and doesn't have open access to God's presence. God had to invite him. And then second, in the interactions that follow, what happens is the end result is that Satan's power is limited. And God's power is glorified. So while he lets Satan come in, and remember, he lets him come in, all that happens is God demonstrates his ultimate authority, and Satan's power is extremely limited. So both of those points teach us that God is completely sovereign and completely in control. So just like with the life of Job that we're going to see, a lot's going to happen to us, going to happen to me, going to happen to you that you're not going to understand. But if we understand this simple fact that God is in complete control and Satan is extremely limited, that ought to bring us some peace and comfort. The second thing we look at is, is Satan's lie. What's, what's, what's the lie that he's trying to propagate? Right? And 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that Satan roams around the earth seeking someone to deceive and devour. Right? That confirms what we see in Job, right? And God questions Job, or God questions Satan, where have you come from, right? And he says, from roaming up and down the earth. So that confirms what we find in Peter. But what's he trying to do? How's he trying to deceive? Ezekiel 28, 15 through 18, I'm going to read that. It tells us that iniquity, iniquity was found in Satan, right? Sin was found in Satan, and he was thrown out of heaven. It tells us that this iniquity was pride. It says from, he says, from the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. So this is talking about Satan. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until... That day that wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud. That's key. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. 
I made you a spectacle before kings. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities and your dishonest trade. So I made fire come from within you, and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. What caused Satan's fall was his pride. It was his pride. And we see that in Isaiah 14, 13, and 14, that this pride led Satan to believe that he could overthrow God, that he could rule over creation, that he could be one in control, that he could, could be equal or greater than God. It said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. These are referenced as the five I wills of Satan. I will ascend to heaven. I'll set my throne above you. I will sit on the mountain of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I can be just like God. That's Satan's great lie. And what happened was it cost him his place in heaven. He's thrown out. But in Revelation 20, 7 through 10, that teaches us that Satan was not deterred. He didn't get thrown out of heaven and quit. He still thinks that he can win by overthrowing God. But why would a man like that, or why would an angel like that, why would he rebel in the first place? All indications are he was placed in a good place. He's at the top of the angel hierarchy, the top of the list. Here in Ezekiel, it, it references his own wisdom. Satan was created full of wisdom. And elsewhere in Scripture, right, when Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted, we see that Satan knows Scripture. He's full of wisdom. He knows Scripture. But his rebellion is rooted in the fact that he doesn't believe God, his word, and or he's offended by it. And the proof of that is in the lie that he believes that he can be equal with God. And interestingly, it's the same lie that Satan perpetuated in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It's the same thing he tripped them up on. Did God really say? That, that's the whole premise of the fall. Did God really say? Come on now, Eve. Are you serious? Did God really say that? Because if you eat that, you know, you can be just like him. You can be just as powerful. That's Satan's great lie. A lie that rejects God as the one true creator and a lie that proposes one's own equality with God. That's the lie that Satan's trying to trip you up on, he's trying to trip me up on, and he's trying to trip Job up on. And that leads us to the third thing, which is Satan's purpose. Satan's activities are designed to defeat God's purpose in creation, and especially God's purpose for the men and women that are created in his image. There's something going on with the fact that I'm created in God's image, you're created in God's image, that really sets off Satan and all the angels that joined in his rebellion. It talks about his splendor and his beauty. He's, he's the highest of all angels. He's tremendously beautiful. And you can imagine watching creation, and God does what? He scoops down and uses the dirt... To create Adam and Eve. They're made of dust. And God says, let's make them in our image. 
And while it's real hard to find that in Scripture anywhere, you can imagine Satan standing back and saying, Are you serious? Are you kidding me? Don't you see how beautiful I am? And yet you're going to take dirt and use that to make them in your image. It's highly offensive. Which potentially could be the reason that led to Satan's fall and Satan's rebellion. So what about these angels that went with him? Right, We know that Satan rebelled, but other angels went with him. These fallen angels. That's where it gets really interesting. Angels were created before man. And specifically, we're told in Hebrews, they were created to serve as ministering spirits to all who would someday become God's heir of salvation. So So the main purpose of angels, or one of the purposes of angels in Scripture, is to minister to you and me. So now, not only... Have you given the dirt your image, but now I'm supposed to serve the dirt? Come on, man. Now Satan's really offended. Human beings made from the dust of the ground, angels were arrayed in beautiful splendor, and yet God chose human beings for his purpose and created them in his image. And so what happens is we see a rebellion from Satan and several angels that joined him. It's an opportunity, it's crazy, it's an opportunity for them to attempt to make the world meet what they wanted, their desires and benefits, as opposed to serving God and man, the reason they were created. Again, it's that same lie that you're no different than God and you can even be equal to him. It's the lie that deceived Satan, it's the lie that deceived the fallen angels, And it's the lie that trips up mankind. You can be equal to God. That's what we do when we sin, right? I mean, we're trying to be our own functional God. God, Pride's what got Satan. And if you really whittle down all of our sin, it comes back to the same thing, pride. It, It comes back to the simple idea that, hey, you know what, God? I've got a better idea. And while you would never stand up in front of a crowd, you wouldn't even stand up in front of the mirror and say it to yourself. What you really mean is, I can do better than you. I can be equal to you. I can be my own functional God. That's Satan law. And it's so easy for us to get tripped up in that. We see more about these fallen angels in Genesis 6 and the book of Jude, which we had talked about this past Wednesday. I think we're going to talk about it this Wednesday too. But it gives us a a deeper look at this lie that we can be equal with God and the action of these fallen angels. And this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. It's hard to decipher. It's hard to understand what's really going on. And it's something that, to be honest with you, we don't deal with. I mean, I spent all my life growing up in church, Sunday school, Genesis 6. You go from Genesis 5 to Genesis 7. Like, you you don't cover Genesis 6. What's going on here? Well, it's part of Satan's rebellion. It included these angels, these sons of man, again referenced in Genesis 6, where it speaks of the Nephilim, or these giants. Right. So what we have happening in Genesis 6, 1 through 5, let's just read that real quick. It says, When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. 
The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So we've got these angels, these sons of man, who somehow are mysteriously using this function, this this human reproduction. Somehow, they're taking advantage of human reproduction. Now, angels alone cannot reproduce. Right? And what trips people up here is Jesus references angels in the New Testament and says, in heaven there will be no marrying, just like the angels. Right? Angels can't reproduce. Angels don't marry. At least in heaven they don't marry. But if you notice... And if I'm wrong, feel free to call me out on it. But if you notice in Scripture, all angels that are referenced are male. So, yeah, two males can't reproduce. I mean, we know that. I mean, they don't seem to know that out there. But two males can't reproduce. Two males don't get married either. Right? So that makes sense that angels don't reproduce and angels don't marry because all angels are male. So that makes sense. But what we see here is that these fallen angels, somehow, some way, they intermingle with some women on earth to create these Nephilim, these giants. And notice that they're called the men of renown. This is, there's some thought that this, the whole concept and idea of Greek mythology is somehow connected here. Because you've got these men of renown, these Nephilim, these giants that are doing amazing things. And people would naturally recognize or want to worship them. Right? Heck, we do that today with people that are just normal. They do supernatural, not supernatural things, but do these great strings of feet. You get your athletes, your superstars, movie stars, whatever, and we want to worship them. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that you've got these giants and people want to worship these giants. So why would the fallen angels do this? Why would they want to intermingle with these women? Why would they want to create these giants? Well, possibly they're trying to do this just so they could create they could so-called create, just like God created. Or simply it's just this ploy, a continuation of this lie that would allow mankind or create this situation where mankind would worship anything but God alone. That's what Paul talked about this in Romans 1, right? We had this tendency to want to worship the created and not the creator. So now Satan gets us to buy into this lie that we can be equal with God or he thinks that he can be equal with God this takes place with the Nephilim, and now we've got people worshiping anything but God. And what happens is this rampant wickedness that goes on leads to the flood, and it leads to God purging the land of wickedness. It's interesting that after the fall, we see a similar thing take place with the Tower of Babel. we got this man called Nimrod. Genesis 10 lists Nimrod as a descendant of Ham and describes him as a mighty one. Now, this is interesting that this Hebrew word for mighty one here is giborim. It's the same word used to describe the Nephilim back in chapter 6 of Genesis. The Greek translation of the Old Testament reads that Nimrod became a giant. So there's something going on here. There's some kind of connection. Maybe this you know, makes you a little uncomfortable because you hadn't heard this stuff before. But there's something going on here. And I don't want us to get tripped up on specifically what's going on. But just understand that Satan's at work here. And he's trying to get you to buy into the lie that you can be equal with God. Or I can be equal with God. And all I have to do is get you to worship something besides God. What happens here is Nimrod wants to build the Tower of Babel. 
right? There's something going on with the Tower of Babel about we want to achieve God-like status, right? We're going to build up into the heavens. Where is God? He's in heaven, so we can be like God. So we're going to build our way up into the heavens just like God. There's also something going on with the Tower of Babel. If we get all the people of the world to center on one place, now we create this one-world religion, or, and when they get dispersed, we begin the process of all these different religions. It's what Satan's after. You can see it now. All these different religions, anything to distract from the one true God. And you can also see the beginnings of the process of, well, if we can merge all these into one, we can all be unified, but they'll be unified and distracted away from the one true God. If we can get them to compromise on this and compromise on that, and we can all you know, live in peace and harmony together, as long as they do anything other than recognize the one true God. That's what it's all about. Satan's still at work. And he's, stay, he's still using the same lie. You can see that with even in the whole concept of evolution. Right? I mean, what's, what's the difference between you and God? It's you're, you just haven't evolved that far yet. So we can limit the power and authority of God... Because we can be just like him. What it does is it places all living things. That's what a evolution does. It places all living things on the same playing field. That's blasphemy. I don't know if you saw. I mean, I don't want to dwell on the news. But a week and a half ago, you know, PETA releases a whole advertising campaign on... Don't, don't call somebody a turkey. Because that's, 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 that's demeaning to turkeys. I mean, seriously. Because, and, and it even, so I, I enjoy Twitter. And, and PETA made statements on Twitter that said, that places you higher than a turkey. Like, who are you to say that you're higher than a turkey? Yeah, I'm higher than a turkey. I was created in the image of God. The turkey wasn't. But the whole concept is, we're all equal. You can be just like God. You can be equal. We're all equal. That's Satan's great lie. He's coming at us from a ton of different angles, but it's all based off the same foundational lie. All, all of this, we're ch chasing, seem, maybe it seems like we're chasing a bunch of rabbits here. But it's all connected back to the book of Job in some form or fashion because Satan's using the same lie. He's just very crafty at using it a bunch of different ways. He's using the same lie. And we have to understand what he's up to. What he's up to in the book of Job and what he's up to in our own lives. He believes that he's equal with God and he wants us to believe that same lie. He believes he can still win. And he, just like he suckered all those fallen angels into his ploy, he wants to sucker you and me into the same ploy. And, and maybe... Oh, man. I can get on a roll chasing rabbits here. But maybe... Maybe you sit there and you think, well, I'm a Christian. There's, there's nothing, nothing can snatch me out of the Father's hand, right? So I'm off limits. Like, like Satan can't get me. Well, let, let, maybe he can snatch you out of the Father's hand. But what he can do, and here, here's a big misconception. Why do you think he's trying to? Why do you think he's trying to? He didn't have to. All he's trying to do is make you ineffective. 
Charlie gave me a, a big book. It's pretty awesome, man. Thank you. A big book of C.S. Lewis writings. And one of the books that's in there is the screw tape letters. And there's a chapter in the screw tape letters where, if you don't know what the screw tape letters is, I would, I, it's good reading, man. But it's basically, in C.S. Lewis's own imagination, two demons, an older demon that's at the top of the ladder, talking to, almost like as a mentor, to a younger demon who's low on the ladder. And so the younger demon is bringing all his problems to the older one or to the more experienced one. And, and in one of the conversations, the, the younger demon says something to the extent of, I've, I've royally screwed up because the, the man that I was in charge of, the man I was in charge of deceiving, he's become a Christian. And the older demon kind of chuckles and says, that, you know, basically, that's not a good thing. But don't act like the game's over, because all you have to do is make him ineffective. Satan doesn't necessarily have to steal you away to join his team. All he has to do is make you ineffective. That's, that's the game plan. So when we believe, so when I buy into this lie or this notion that, well, I'm a believer now, I'm off limits, <coughs> you're, you're falling right into his hands. Like all he's trying to do is make you ineffective. Because if you're ineffective, then other people don't get reached. And that's exactly what he wants to accomplish. We go back to Job and those six verses. Job approaches God with this... Boy, why did I write that? Satan approaches God with this arrogant attitude, and he challenges God to a test. He, he feels pretty good about himself. But you've got to remember... That God has summoned Satan to his court. Otherwise, Satan wouldn't have the authority to enter. And what we see here, that I, I found this very enjoyable right here, but what we see is this, there's a game of one-upmanship going on here as God questions Satan. right? And the fact that God is omnipresent, which just means he can be in more places at once, and he's omniscient, that he knows all things, and Satan is not those things, that's on full display here. Because what's Satan been doing? He's been doing reconnaissance on the earth. He's walking to and fro. He's not in multiple places at once. He's walking back and forth. I mean, he sees what he sees. He can't see way over there. He sees where he's at. And before Satan can speak, God says, Have you considered my servant Job? So it's almost, if you, if you can imagine, you know, as you're reading Scripture, if you can imagine, make the movie in your head, if you can imagine it, you know, Satan's in the courtroom. People, they're probably looking around like, he doesn't belong. What's he doing here? And he walks in, he grabs the mic, and he's like, have you considered my servant Job? Like, God knows the question he's going to ask. And then he doesn't even let Satan ask it. It's like, have you considered Job? Like, let's quit beating around the bush here and waste, you waste all my time. Have you considered my servant Job? God knows exactly what's going on. God proves his omniscience, and he knows what Satan is going to ask before he asks it. God provides the answer without the question. So we have to remember that God's in complete control. And again, God's description of Job, it's on point with what we talked about last week. Job is unique, he's blameless, and he's upright. But Satan pushes back on this by saying, Does your man Job fear, fear you for no reason? In other words, Job, he's saying, Job, Job only worships you. Like, 
Get over yourself. Job only worships you because of the things that you give him. Yeah, if he quit, you'd take him away. That's why he worships you. Look at all the things you've given him, including his own protection. Take it away, I dare you. Take it away and watch him curse you to your face. That's what, what Satan says. It's almost as if Satan says, listen, you're prancing around and you're acting like you're bigger and better than me, but the deal is you're no better than me. You're no different and I can prove it. Because this guy that you hold in such high esteem, he'll curse you like a dog if you take away what he's got. And if he was harmed, he would quickly prove my point. So Satan's goal is to have Job renounce God, and he truly believes that Job will. And the, the thing is, his goal for Job is the same goal that he has for you and the same goal that he has for me. He wants us to renounce God. And then we see in verse 12, God calls Satan's bluff, right? And the game's on. He's like, okay, let's play. <laughs> he says, but I got one rule. You can't physically harm him. And we're going to see here later that God's going to change that rule because <laughs> Satan's going to come back crying like a little girl, like, well, if you only didn't have that rule. <laughs> but he's, you know, he'll say, all right, remove the rule. But for this first test, Satan says, I mean, God says, fine, bring it on. You're, yeah, that's not the truth, and I'll prove it to you. Just don't touch him. And again, what we see right there, it's so easy to glance over, but what we see is another reminder that God's in control of the game. God's in complete control of what's going on. Because Satan doesn't push back. Did you notice that? Satan doesn't push back. He doesn't say, well, why do you get to decide the rules? He doesn't say that. He knows who gets to decide the rules. He's like, all right, I'll play by the rules. Game on. <laughs> and so next week, we'll, we'll get to the game. But what is, what is all of this information? What does it mean for me and you? Right? And I think I've got three things here. The first is, God's always in control. Right? Regardless of what's going on, you've got to remember that. What's going to happen is, we're going to advance through the story, and it's going to appear like Satan's in control. Right? It's going to appear like, in Job's life, Satan's in control. But this passage has made it clear, it's set the stage, that God has Satan on a leash. Right? And again, like I mentioned earlier, in our own lives, we often give Satan too much credit. He's not all-powerful, he's not omnipresent, and he's not omniscient. So quit acting like he is. We'll see later. I, I was writing, I just like I did last week. I, was, I got an outline that I was writing yesterday for two weeks from now that's in my head, rattling around. But he, Satan can't tell the future. He doesn't know the future. If he knew the future, he'd quit because he knows he's going to get beat. So quit giving Satan too much credit. Quit giving him too, so much, too much control. As his name implies, he's the great opposer and deceiver, right? And if we're rooted in the things of God, then his power quickly diminishes. And we've got to remember that perhaps the greatest weapon that we have against the lies of Satan is the truth of God's word. Like, that's part of what sets him off anyway. Because he doesn't like God's word, he doesn't appreciate it. He knows it. But in, in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, again, go back to the temptation of Jesus. It's the, Jesus gives us the model, right? Every lie that Satan throws at him, Jesus rebukes it with the truth. He rebukes it with Scripture. He quotes Scripture back to Satan. And so I think that we would do well to do the same thing. The second thing is that understand Satan's game plan. And it's to deny the God the glory that he's due. 
Satan's greatest aim, like his whole goal, is to prove that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the one true God, right? He believes that he's on an equal playing field and wants us to buy into this lie as well. That's what's going on. And, and here's the simple truth. You can't have a good game against your opponent if you don't understand his game plan and devise your own. Right? It's what football teams do every week. We watch film. This is what they're going to do. This is what we're going to do. If I don't have the film, I probably don't perform very well. We've got the film. Well, you just read the film. You know the tactic. You know the game plan. So you would do well to devise your own. If I know that the easiest way to rebuke the lies of Satan is with the Scripture, then maybe I ought to get to know in the Scripture. I mean, there's your game plan right there. It's, it's, oh man. High school football, man. I used to coach high school football. And you got the, you got the starting defense, the ones, and you got the scout team practicing against the ones. And so you spend all weekend drawing up, you've watched the film, you're drawing up all the other team's plays, you got them on big note cards, you get the scout team in, and you're, you're like, all right, this is what you're going here, this is what you're, and the freshmen are like, and they can't even read a card and don't know what they're doing. Like, you've got the book right here. Read it. You can't run the play if you can't read it or don't read it, right? If you, you want to know what the game plan is, the game plan is no scripture because it's the easiest way to rebuke the lies of Satan. The last thing is just a simple reminder that you always got to be on guard. Right? First Peter 5, 8 says that Satan's walking about seeking who may may devour. It's the same thing you see here in Job. He's walking back and forth or those underneath him, fallen angels, de- demons, whatever you want to call it, are walking back and forth. They're looking for whom they can devour. That seeking that's in that verse, it's a present tense active participle. There's some more grammar. It's a present tense active participle which, participle, which implies Present and repeating action means it's not stopping, it's ongoing, right? That's what Satan's doing. It's what he's doing today, it's what he's going to be doing tomorrow. His history backs that up. He failed in the garden, he failed prior to the flood, he failed at Babel, he failed with Jesus, and yet he still doesn't give up. It's a continual process, he's still working. And a Christian that does not recognize this is asking for trouble. You're not off limits, man. And if you don't recognize that he's actively working, you're asking for trouble. A boxer, an MMA fighter, I enjoy watching both. But a boxer doesn't walk into the ring and fight with his hands down. If he fights with his hands down, he ain't fighting very long. Because he's going to get knocked on his butt. He's always on guard. He's always, that's what I tell them all the time, protect your face. He's always protecting his face. Or else he's susceptible to that knockout punch. Right? We're the same thing. Keep your hands up. You're always on guard. Because if, the, if, if Satan's always prowling around, always seeking, looking for an opportunity, then you always should be on guard. So that's a little bit about who Satan is. I think it's important. L- listen, make sure you understand. Again, 
Don't give him too much credit. Don't give him too much power. And if you look at the book of Job, just as an example, Satan's in two chapters. Two chapters. And yet we act like he's main cast. He's not. He's not. He's a side story. So why do we make him main cast? Right? Be prepared. Be on guard. Have a game plan. Don't give him too much credit. Right? Who's, who's the main character here? Ooh, trick question. Who's the main character? God is. It's not even Job. It's God. Thousand bonus points to Grace for next week. We'll put a star up on the poster board on her wall. <laughs> so next week we'll get into the action. We're going to look at the tests of Job. He's, there's two of them coming up. And how does he respond? What's it teach us? That's where we're going to go. But just understand a little bit and study that on your own because there's a lot going on there, man. But understand who Satan is, what he's about, what his lie is, and how he's acting and working. Because if we don't, then we're susceptible to be a target that's not ready to defend, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the, the study of Job. We thank, that, man, thank you that you, you're in control, that, that Satan's not the one with power and authority. We thank you for the gift of the word that we can use to defend ourselves against his attacks. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that, that we wouldn't take, take the word for granted. I, I fear I'm as guilty as anybody. I fear like, you know, with the, with the snap of a finger, the Internet's gone, and we don't have the Bible, and, and, we, and we don't know what to do. Lord, I pray that we would study it, that we would, man, that we would just devour it and know it so that we can be ready to fight back and push back when Satan comes to us with temptations. Lord, I, I thank you that, again that you're in complete control. And as we look to these future tests of Job, Lord, I, I pray that, that they give us encouragement, the game plan, and the strength to stand firm in our faith as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.